Uh, what we're trying to do uh, with the preaching series we are embarking on this term is trying to save all of you a whole load of angst and pain and frustration in life by revealing to you God's picture for how to live in the world he created. And so uh, over the last few weeks, we've looked at God's blueprint for sex, marriage, singleness. What we're going to be looking at today is what God has to say in the Bible about divorce and remarriage. Now, just so you know, we're going to end up in a little while in Mark chapter 10, where Jesus himself addresses this very topic head on. But before we land there, very quickly, I want to fill you in on the context to what he says. So to start off with, I want to return to the passage that we looked at last time. Genesis chapter 2, we're going to pick it up in verse 19. So the Lord God formed from the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would call them, and the man chose a name for each one. He gave names to all the livestock, all the birds of the sky, and all the wild animals. But still there was no helper just right for him. And so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While the man slept, the Lord God took out one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib and brought her to the man. At last, the man exclaimed, this one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from man. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. For now, all I want you to grasp is that in marriage, two people become one. Marriage is way more than mere companionship. It's more profound. It's much deeper than that. It's when two people are fused together, body and soul, into one entity. Now, I want you to hold that thought in your mind as we now flip over to Deuteronomy chapter 24. This is what it says in Deuteronomy 24. Suppose a man marries a woman, but she does not please him. Having discovered something wrong with her, he writes a document of divorce, hands it to her, and sends her away from his house. When she leaves his house, she is free to marry another man. But if the second husband also turns against her, writes a document of divorce, hands it to her, and sends her away, or if he dies, the first husband may not marry her again, for she has been defiled, and that would be detestable to the Lord. Now, we're not going to stay in this passage for too long, uh, although there is a whole lot going on here. And if Jeremy Kyle hadn't been axed from the TV, he'd be all over this for sure. But all I want you to notice is the use of the word suppose and if. Just to explain, uh, back in those days, the Jewish teachers, they drew a distinction between the commands of God and the concessions of God. And so when we see a command, we know it is what God intended in the very beginning. It is his heart for us. But when we come across concessions, 
is not what God originally intended. It's more his acknowledgement that we now live in this broken, messed up, sin-prone world, and this is the lesser of two evils. Now, this passage right here in Deuteronomy, I suggest, falls squarely into the concession category. Moses is presupposing divorce. He's not saying it's a good thing or a bad thing. He's just saying it is a thing. And he's saying when it happens, here's the rule. If a guy divorced his wife and she remarries, and her second husband either divorces her or dies, then husband number one cannot marry her again. That's the point of this passage in Deuteronomy. Now, fast forward to Jesus' day, and there was this raging debate going on, not just about divorce, but actually around this passage in Deuteronomy in particular. And it all centered on that phrase, something wrong or something indecent with her. On one side of the debate was the view that this was referring to adultery and nothing more, that really this was the only valid reason for divorce. Then on the other side of the debate was the view that, no, this included pretty much anything you don't like about your spouse. So if you fall out of love, no worries, just get a divorce. If you're not happy anymore, or if you find yourself attracted to someone else, well, that's fine, Just, just go ahead and get a divorce. That was the debate. Now, right at the beginning of Mark's Gospel, we see John the Baptist wading right into the middle of this pretty heated debate. He's preaching in Judea by the Jordan River, which is an important detail. Just remember that. He's preaching in Judea by the Jordan River, and he's calling people to repent of their sins. And I think it's fair to say this gets him into a whole lot of trouble, culminating in Mark 6, verse 17, where we see that Herod sent soldiers to arrest and imprison John as a favor to Herodias. Herodias had been his brother Philip's wife, but Herod had married her. John had been telling Herod, it is against God's law for you to marry your brother's wife. Now, here's the point. John was imprisoned and eventually beheaded for preaching against divorce and marriage in Judea by the Jordan River, all of which sets up the context for Mark chapter 10, where we read that Jesus left Capernaum and went down to the region of where? Judea, and into the area east of the Jordan River. Once again, crowds gathered around him, and as usual, he was teaching them. Some Pharisees came and tried to trap him with this question. Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife? They're essentially asking him where he stands in this whole debate from Deuteronomy about divorce. But it's not because they're interested in how Jesus interprets Deuteronomy 24. Now, we're told here that they were merely trying to trap him. They pretty much want Jesus dead, and they're smart enough to realize that if they get Jesus to stand up against divorce and remarriage in Judea, in Herod's backyard, 
then there's a pretty good chance that Jesus will end up beheaded like John the Baptist. That's what's going on here. Verse 3, Jesus answered them with a question. What did Moses say in the law about divorce? And so Jesus doesn't shy away from the question. He doesn't back down in any way, but he turns it into a question which you read the Gospels, he frequently does, and it's a pretty cunning strategy. When people are trying to trap you or trick you or say things that will get you into trouble, uh, follow the example of Jesus and turn it around into a question for them. Jesus turns it into a question for those trying to trick him. Verse 4, well, they replied, he permitted it. He said a man can give his wife a written notice of divorce and send her away. In other words, the Pharisees acknowledged that Deuteronomy 24 was not a command, it was a concession, that they know that God's heart was never for marriage to end in divorce. Verse 5, but Jesus responded, he wrote this commandment only as a concession to your hard hearts. But God made them male and female from the beginning of creation. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. And so Jesus here is beginning to answer his own question. Now keep in mind that tradition has it that Moses authored the first five books of the Old Testament. And so Jesus' question is, what did Moses command you? What did he say in the first five books of the Bible? And the Pharisees immediately start talking about Deuteronomy 24, and Jesus is like, no, 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 that doesn't count. That is merely a concession, that is not a command. What Moses commanded is found all the way back at the beginning of Genesis. A man will or shout, leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two are united into one. That's the command, that's God's heart, that's God's intention for marriage. And then comes Jesus' interpretation of Moses' command in Genesis. He says, since they are no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. Later on, when Jesus was alone with his disciples in the house, they brought up the subject again. I think because Jesus was taking this debate much further than anyone else was at the time. He told them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries someone else, she commits adultery. And so, as well as not permitting divorce, he's also saying that anyone who divorces and then remarries is committing adultery. And just pause there for a moment. I can only imagine what some of you are thinking right now. I can only imagine some of the pain that perhaps some of you are feeling. I, I imagine some are feeling shame or guilt or embarrassment, perhaps stigma. Uh, others maybe are feeling bitterness and anger against God or at your ex-spouse or perhaps right now at me for bringing up all this stuff. Uh, others perhaps are feeling fear or a little bit of anxiety. Will you go the way that your parents did or of your first marriage? Uh, 
I get that all of those feelings are going to be raked up right now. I, I get we're all over the map in here. Each of us has a different story to tell around this stuff. Uh, I, I get that this is a hard topic to be talking about, but the reason we're talking about it is because the Bible speaks about it, and we want to be thorough. We want to deal with what the Bible teaches on issues that perhaps others would turn a blind eye to, or it's easier to ignore. But in all of this, I just want to plead with you to stay with me for a little longer, because what I want to do for the rest of this talk is just kind of ground all of this with a few thoughts or comments on the subject of divorce and remarriage from the passages that we've been looking at. There are five things, uh, don't worry, some of them are really short, um, but five things uh, that I want to draw out of these passages uh, around this subject. First of all, I just want to underline, and we've seen this uh, previous weeks in this series, number one, marriage is a covenant, not a contract. Marriage is a covenant, not a contract. One of the problems, I think, with that we're dealing with in this whole day and age that we're alive in, where 42% of marriages end in divorce, is we don't think about marriage in quite the same way as Jesus and the other biblical writers. Uh, I think we, when we tend to think of it, we think of it like two parties coming together for an arrangement that's mutually beneficial. I'll do for you as long as you do for me. So when, the, when one of the parties breaks the contract, we assume that we're now free and clear to walk out and do what we want. Now, I often hear people uh, asking questions about the biblical grounds for divorce, but really that is not the vocabulary that is used in the Bible. The, the biblical grounds for divorce isn't a phrase that you ever find on the lips of Jesus or any of the New Testament writers or the Old Testament for that matter. You see, that's more contract language, like if there's biblical grounds for divorce, then I'm out, then I'm free. But the Bible always and everywhere uses the language of covenant. Covenant love says, whatever happens... I'm not going anywhere. I mean, isn't that what we promise each other when we make our wedding vows, for better, for worse, richer or poorer, in sickness or in health, till death do us part? That's what marriage is all about. It's a promise, it's a vow, it's a commitment to stay faithful to somebody through thick and thin, no matter what happens. So, if you wake up the next morning and your spouse goes down with a chronic disease, I'm with you every step of the way. Or if your spouse loses all their wealth or their business falls apart, I promise to stay faithful to you. And when you realize that they're nowhere near as charming and kind and thoughtful seven years into the marriage as they were during your courtship, I promise to keep on loving you. Put like that, I'm sure you'd agree, marriage is a massive risk, uh, and it's actually one that you should take incredibly seriously, because what you're saying in your vows is that in the sight of not only all your friends and family, but more importantly, before God, I promise to be faithful to you whatever happens. So marriage 
is a covenant, not a contract. And because of that, secondly, God's heart is always repentance and reconciliation. Always repentance and reconciliation. Now, without wishing to sound too pessimistic, marriage, a definition for it would be, marriage is basically two people sinning against each other pretty much every day. That's what marriage is. But more than that, to give you a slightly more positive take, is two people sinning against each other and learning to repent and forgive each other over and over and over and over again and keep on seeing the good and keep on believing the best and no matter what, stay faithful to each other and mirror and mimic God's nature to one another for the whole world to see. That's it. Which means that both of us in the marriage need to open up to sin and problems in our relationship and we both need to take responsibility for things we're finding hard or hurts or pain or disagreement or disappointment because God's heart is always repentance and reconciliation. That said, thirdly, there are times when a marriage dies. It's gut-wrenching but we don't live in Eden anymore, and there are times when no matter what you do or don't do, the marriage dies, which I think quickly leads us to the two main questions we tend to have when we talk about this whole subject. Number one, when is it okay to walk away? Or to put it another way, is there a time when divorce isn't sinful? Now, just to say, there are some Bible-believing scholars who would say only in the case of infidelity, and that's based on Matthew 19, which is the only other place where Jesus directly teaches on this subject. It, it, it pretty closely parallels what we've seen in Mark chapter 10, but then right at the end takes it a step further. Uh, we read there, some Pharisees came and tried to trap Jesus with this question. Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife for just any reason? Haven't you read the scriptures, Jesus replied? They record that from the beginning, God made them male and female. And he said, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother, is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Since they're no longer two, but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together." then, why did Moses say in the law that a man could give his wife a written notice of divorce and send her away, they asked. We're familiar with all that context, the passages we've looked at, we, we, we see where all of that's coming from. Here's Jesus' reply, verse 8. Jesus replied, Moses permitted divorce only as a concession to your hard hearts, but it was not what God had originally intended. And I'll tell you this, whoever divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery unless his wife has been unfaithful. And so on the basis of that passage, some would say that marital unfaithfulness is the only valid legitimate reason for divorce. Others would say that Jesus here isn't providing an exhaustive list, and here's why. The Apostle Paul, later on in the New Testament, he writes about divorce in 1 Corinthians 7, where he lists actually a whole bunch of valid and invalid reasons 
for divorce. For example, uh, on the list of invalid reasons is having an unbelieving spouse. And so if you come to faith in Jesus and your spouse isn't a believer, that is not grounds for divorce. In fact, quite the opposite. You should love and serve your spouse more than ever before. But Paul says a valid reason is abandonment. Like in the first century, I know it's hard for some of us to imagine, but there were no mobile phones, no internet, no Google. And so if you woke up one morning and your spouse was gone, you would have no way of contacting them or knowing where they'd gone. You, you, you couldn't track them down, you couldn't look online, you couldn't track kind of social media to see where they popped up. They were gone, and there was no way of finding them. And so, if your spouse abandons you, Paul says you are free to get divorced, which means that Paul is either contradicting Jesus, or he's suggesting that Jesus isn't providing an exhaustive list in Matthew 19. And so the argument goes, there must therefore be other times, as tragic as it is, when the marriage dies and it is okay to walk away. Now just to say, as a church we have no official position on this, at least in part because life is complex and each individual situation is different. But speaking personally, so this isn't the kind of church's line, that this is me speaking personally, I tend to land on the second position here, uh, that there are times adultery being one, as long as there's no repentance, but adultery is one, and I'll add to that list abuse, there are times where divorce is permitted. But that being said, God's heart is always what? repentance and reconciliation, always. Where marriage is merely a contract, it kind of makes sense, doesn't it, just to walk away the moment one party breaks the terms. But if marriage is a covenant, then you don't give up easily. You, you give every opportunity for Jesus to convict, for Jesus to empower, for Jesus to restore. Because what's impossible for us certainly isn't impossible for him, and we want to trust his ability to heal and resurrect what seems broken or dead to us. So, that's the first question. Second one is this, is it okay to remarry after a divorce? And this, I've got to be honest, is a particularly thorny one. Uh, some would say, no, never. Uh, and the logic here is that you'd be better off divorced and single than remarried. But here's the problem, we're in the modern world, and particularly, I think, in the church, we don't tend to have a high view of singleness. It's like because we have such a high view of marriage, we can end up making single people feel in some way second class. But as Rich so brilliantly taught us the other week, singleness is not only a valid way of life, in many respects, it's a better way to live. I mean, if you think you, you, you have to get married or remarried and have sex in order to live a fulfilling life, then what does that imply about Jesus and the Apostle Paul, who were both single, and I think we probably all have to agree, did manage to accomplish a fair bit with their lives. Listen, life isn't found in marriage, life is ultimately found 
in Jesus. And so wherever you land on this question, I think you need to start with a robust theology of singleness. And not singleness, so, hey, I can do whatever I want, but hey, I'm single so I can leverage my life for Jesus and his kingdom. All that being said, some Bible-believing scholars have, have grappled with these texts and have landed at the conclusion that remarriage is not permitted if you're divorced. Others who are equally committed to submitting to what the Bible teaches, they would say that as long as every possible attempt at reconciliation has been exhausted, and by that I mean relentless repentance and forgiveness on your part, appeals for outside help, receiving marriage counselling, giving it time. But if after all of that, if all attempts at reconciliation have been exhausted and after a period of waiting to see if the situation changes and having thoroughly worked through all the baggage that comes with a divorce, like you need to own up to the pain, you need to own up to the hurt, you need to own up to the bitterness, you need to face up to your own flaws and open up your life to Jesus and His healing work. If after all of that, you then want to remarry, and if you have the blessing of the leaders of the church, then some people would argue you are free to do so. Now, once again, without wishing to irritate you, as a church, we do not have a blanket, one-size-fits-all policy on this, not least because there is some ambiguity around it all. But again, personally, just to divulge where I'm at in this, personally, with a whole lot of trepidation and humility and a bunch of caveats, I would tend to land on the second view, that in some instances, there is the permission to remarry after a divorce. And I'd add to that, if, if this is a live issue for you, We'd, we'd love to meet up and chat it through. Or uh, if you'd rather go away and read around this a little more, uh, really the, the best book that I've come across in terms of balance on this subject is the book Remarriage After Divorce in Today's Church, Three Views. And uh, there's a picture of it, so you can go away and hunt it down on Amazon later. Now, if you do get that book, I, I do need to warn you, it, it's certainly not the lightest read, but it is well worth the effort if this is something you're personally grappling with. And also, just to say, through all of this, the right answer is not necessarily the one that feels right to you or the one that fits with what you want it to be. No, it's the one that makes the most sense of Jesus, his teaching, and the rest of Scripture as a whole. Moving on, fourthly, out of five points, we're getting there. Fourthly, divorce, I want to underline this one as well, divorce is not the unforgivable sin. And I'll add to that, divorce is not your identity either. I think of what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or commit adultery or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or are thieves or greedy people or drunkards or are abusive or cheat people, 
none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Some of you were once like that, but you were cleansed, you were made holy, you were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You know, I love the balance here. On the one side, perhaps some of you need to hear, don't fool yourselves, these things are sinful. But I think the vast majority need to hear, that is what some of you were, not are. That's what some of you were. And so whatever your background, if you have come to a place of repentance and faith in Jesus, your past is no longer your identity. No, your identity is washed clean, made righteous, accepted, forgiven, made right with God, set apart for what He wants you to do with the rest of your life. That is who you are. That is the identity that you carry. And your future is like this white canvas because Jesus can and will redeem anything, including the sin done to you and the sin done by you. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you open up your life to God in repentance and faith, things that were never God's heart, never God's will, never God's plan for you, He can and will take all of that stuff and somehow turn it around and repurpose it for good. That's what Jesus is all about. Which leads to my fifth and final point. Through all of this, Jesus has the cure for hardness of heart. Jesus has the cure for hardness of heart. Both Matthew and Mark, they report, I don't know if you notice this, how Jesus said, Moses permitted divorce only as a concession to your hard hearts. You know, I think the number one killer of marriage isn't adultery, isn't abandonment, isn't abuse. The number one killer of marriage, according to Jesus, is hard-heartedness. Really, I think that is the root issue underneath everything else. It's like the love has gone, the compassion has gone, the grace has gone, the humility has gone, the openness to God has gone, and there is hardness instead. But Jesus goes on to say, let no one split apart what God has joined together, which must mean that Jesus has the cure for hardness of heart, because He doesn't call you to do anything that you cannot do with His help. Admittedly, He does call us to do a whole ton of stuff we cannot achieve just with our own self-effort, but He doesn't tell us to do anything that's impossible for us with His help. And so, to end, to, to wrap all of this up, wherever you're at today, whether there's pain and hurt and trauma, and there will be for many in the room, or whether you're kind of sitting there thinking, well, I don't see how this applies to me. Everything's going swimmingly well right now. Wherever you're at, let's bring our collective heart to Jesus. 
You know, sometimes in the church, we don't always do a great job of being honest. It's like for some reason, we feel like we've got to hide behind a mask and pretend that everything's fine. I don't know, maybe you're here and you're divorced. Maybe it's painful, your spouse was unfaithful to you. Maybe you've been unfaithful to your spouse. Maybe if you're being honest, you'd say you feel like you're stuck in a marriage that is a letdown a lot of the time. Maybe you are sitting there living with a sense of quiet desperation. Maybe your parents got divorced and you're scared of going the same way. Maybe you're single, you're you're scared to get married because the chances of survival are just stacked against you. Wherever you're at, I want you to know this is not a church where you need to come and hide. This is a place to bring your pain to Jesus and stand shoulder to shoulder alongside brothers and sisters in believing in hope that Jesus has all we need. He alone has the ability to reach deep into the brokenness and the pain and do what only he can do. And so, I want to finish by inviting you to stand if you're able to, and I want to pray for each of us, and this is for each of us, and I want us to receive this individually Uh, And I want us to stand alongside one another as well and pray it into those around us too. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I want to invite you right now to, to come and flood us come and flood us. We, we pray that right now you, you would come, Holy Spirit, and do what only you can do. I think right now we need more than a bit of teaching. We need an encounter with you. We need you to come and do your healing work where, there, where there's pain, where there's brokenness. Do you come, Holy Spirit, and heal and mend? Where, where, where people need conviction, Would you bring it right now? Where where people need encouragement, where even this talk is coming with condemnation, I I pray you would come alongside and encourage right now. Where where people are just a bit confused and still don't understand how this applies to them, where where people need revelation, would you bring it right now? Where, Where people just feel caught and trapped, where people need freedom, please bring it please bring it. Where people need softness of heart, would you overwhelm with your love? Holy Spirit, would you come and do what only you can do? I pray you, 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 you lift us from just feeling like we're trapped in this situation, we can't see a way out. Pray for hope. Pray for faith. Pray for a new perspective. And I pray that none in this room would feel like they're facing this alone. I pray you would put to death that, that sense of isolation, um, alone in this. I want to pray that we would be a family who stand alongside one another and don't judge, but show grace and kindness, who embrace rather than push away. And I pray give some people in this room today the courage to ask for help, to allow people in that together we might walk closer to your purpose for our lives. Ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.